coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. The WannaCry worms brought the world to tears. We've got the latest details, conspiracy theories, fallout, and some tissues. Then, the story of a keylogger that may be hiding in your audio driver. We've got the details and some information to find out if you're infected. Then, it's some great feedback from the audience, a hard-hitting roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on May 16th, 2017, and is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week, why, it's that BSD guy you all know and love. No, no, not that one. Yeah, that's right. It's Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. What do you mean, no, not that one? Well, not Alan June. There's like oh. a thousand, and there's, there's several more, but yep. you're the one. Oh, yeah, okay. You're my favorite. I, yeah. I think you're this audience's <laughs> current favorite. Favoritism, eh? Yeah, no, we don't already, need to go there. Already, favoritism. Yeah. Well, welcome Hello, to the everyone. show. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. It's nice here to be doing, uh, starting to tech snap a little early today, but hey, that's because we've got a huge, huge main topic today. I don't even know if we can cover all of it. We'll do our best. I'm sure it'll come up multiple times in future shows. Maybe we should just dive right in, unless, unless, Dan, there's anything you'd like to say to the audience first. Mm, I'm on a lot of figs. And oh, no. No. The, pla- the place is a mess, and I'm flying tomorrow. Oh, where are you going? Uh, PG Con. Oh, right. Awesome. Hey, that's exciting. How long will you Starts be gone? next week. Uh, <laughs> I don't come back until June. Wow. You're a traveling monster. Mm. <laughs> well, uh, while I'm up there in Ottawa, the some of the NHL playoffs will be in town. Oh, that sounds fun. And my parents live there. And two weeks after PG Con is BSD Can. Right. So I'll be there for that. Huh. And you can still register for both of those, he says, knowing full well that everyone knows that Dan runs those conferences, so it's a total <laughs> conflict of interest. Hey, but uh, I think it will allow it. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'll be the grand arbiter of the TechSnap program, at least for today. <laughs> but there's really some nasty stuff that happened almost immediately after the last show. I know. It seemed like it dropped. This happens kind of too it, often. It's like a, right, we get off air and then, boom, big security news story. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. Yes. It's not our fault. There's no causality here. No. All right. Well, uh, tell us more about this unfortunate news. Well, everyone should remember a while back when we said that uh, all these tools from the NSA that they had developed for various exploits that they had um, had been stolen. Uh, I think a third party or it sounded like a contractor or someone who wasn't actually directly employed by the NSA got hold of it and then said, ooh, look at this, look at this, this is very interesting, and distributed it. And um, we said at the time that a lot of it had been patched already. We, we noticed in the weeks to follow that some of this stuff had been patched already. But it turns out that not all of this stuff was patched. And some of the tools, uh, especially one, has been let loose on tens of thousands of sites is it has it reached hundreds of thousands now the last report i heard was three hundred thousand. yeah i think that sounds about right last thing i heard as well and it's ranged from fedex to hospitals to small businesses 
just all kinds of places have been hit by this. And sure, the patches for this particular uh, exploit came out in in March, I believe. Yes, that's correct. We get, we get, we, we've got a timeline. We'll get to that eventually. But basically, um, it was a patch prepared in February. There's a patch released in in March, and then these um, exploits started appearing. And it seems that there's a lot of people who had almost a month or perhaps a bit more to patch did not patch, and those are the people that are going to be that have gotten hit hard. And I, I've seen all these uh, cries of oh. The health system is terrible. They should have patched all this sooner. And the problem is they don't have the time. And unfortunately, it looks like automatic updates were turned off because if they were turned on, they would have gathered these updates already. Um, there have been people in the past that, that have said, hey, listen, turn off automated automated updates because it's really inconvenient because, you know, you go to shut down your laptop and it says, hey, listen, I've got these updates. Let's apply these updates now. Um, and we'll get we'll cover that as well. One of the one of the things that's called for by one of the articles we'll look at now is that Microsoft has to make patching easier for the user. And there's some merit in that. But um the trouble is that the onus winds up being on the end user, and it's not everyone winds up doing that. So let's start by looking at the at the first article, please, um, which is hackers hit dozens of countries exploiting stolen NSA tool. And it starts off by talking about all the hospitals which have been basically hit by this that really started on Friday. This really... Um, blew up on Friday. Now, this article is, is dated May the 12th, which is uh, just four days ago. And there is cyber attacks that hit dozens of countries worldwide. It forced Britain's health system to send patients away. It froze computers at Russia's interior ministry and wrecked havoc on tens of thousands of computers elsewhere. Now, that, that's as of that date, tens of thousands. It's now well over 300,000. So basically, it was, they're, they're describing it as a blackmail at attack, a blackmail attempt. And we, we know it mostly as ransomware, where this uh, virus gets on, uh, the malware gets on, and it, it encrypts all your files and said, sorry, you can't have, have access to these files until you pay up. And just this morning, somewhere, I, I was watching a video where they were talking about um, how sophisticated these uh, thieves have become. And, and make no doubt about it, these are thieves. They're, they're stealing your system, they're locking it up and saying, hey, give us money. Yeah, right, um, exactly. The, they're taking away your right to access your files, use your networks, mm -hmm. all of the resources yep. you should control. Yep. Blackmailers. Yeah. They're saying... Give us this, or you won't get that. It's really despicable. So, mm, so it turns out that these folks almost universally use Bitcoin for payment. And that's mostly because it's secure and probably because it's very difficult to trace. But it's not right. impossible. And it also makes it difficult. You know, people can't, once, once they've transferred the Bitcoin, they can't get it back. No. Once you've made a Bitcoin payment, is there any way to get it back? 
not I don't think not so. feasibly to someone who doesn't control the blockchain or, or similar. Mm-hmm. Now, not only is it difficult to get it back, it it it, it is not an easy thing for people to do it's not an easy thing just to send bitcoin to someone because most people have never heard of bitcoin you have to get an account you have right, to you do have this to you have to there's do some that. things you definitely have to learn uh you know that maybe it's a little bit easier these days but still right it's like quite foreign you're not even sure like where do you start to do this how do i get my files i can't do my job anymore guess what the criminals know this they have helplines well, I mean, you got to make it. You got to make it easy for people, right? They have very good customer service. Uh, that's that's they have the been known funniest part of this whole thing. To, to walk people through all this, I, it, I, I think it was a reporter on a radio broadcast that I heard today who had actually gone through this process of doing the Bitcoin and getting getting involved. Oh, interesting. It might have been an online help session or something like that. I'm sure it wasn't a phone call, <laughs> right? A friendly but, chat bot that you can talk to. Yeah, and. They had, he called it very good customer service about walking through how you do this. Um, and they also had customer service to help you decrypt after you had paid because a lot of people didn't know how to get right. that done. And I hate to say it, but at least that's ethical. Yeah. I mean, you're, I mean, you're sticking to your agreement rather than like, oh, well, sorry, no, those files are deleted now. Yeah. Um. I guess they really now, want it to be credible, right? So that more people will pay so that they can be, you know, that you, you're willing yep. to pay because you believe that yep. you will get your files back. Yep. Yep. Um, some, of the, some of the stuff that people were paying were about $300. You don't want to make the value too big or people aren't going to pay it all. So, oh, God, I can't afford that. I'm not going to pay that. But if, if it's an amount that a business almost has is, what did you used to call, call it? The... Um, it's like a little slush fund that you, you keep on hand for paying daily expenses. I forget that what that was called when I worked somewhere. It's not really a slush fund. Uh, petty cash. Yeah, there we go. That's, That's it. the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Petty cash. Um, now, further on in the this first article that we're looking at, the connection to the NSA was particularly chilling. Starting last summer, a group calling itself the, quote, shadow brokers, unquote, began to post software tools that came from the United States government's stockpile of hacking weapons. So the attacks on Friday seemed to be the first time that that this cyber weapon stolen from that place, which which they mentioned was funded by American taxpayers and stolen by an adversary that, that had been unleashed by cyber criminals against patients, hospitals, businesses, governments, and ordinary citizens. And they said something similar happened with remnants of the Stuxnet worm that was used against Iran's nuclear program about seven years ago. So elements of these tools appear frequently in other less ambitious attacks. Um, Now, they point out that the U.S. has never confirmed that the tools posted by shadow brokers belong to the NSA or any other intelligence agencies, but former intelligence officials have said that the tools appeared to come from the NSA's Tailored Access Operations Unit, which infiltrates foreign computer networks. And of note, that unit has since been renamed, so don't don't go looking for it. It's got a new name. They don't mention it here. <laughs> right. We're not quite sure what that name is. Mm-hmm. So... 
The attacks on Friday are likely to raise significant questions about whether the growing number of countries developing and stockpiling cyber weapons can avoid having those same tools purloined and turned against their own citizens. Now, I want to jump down to the that that point about pur- being purloined and used against its own citizens. Remember the FBI trying to get Apple to unlock the cell phone. Uh if you jump to the third last article about Tim Cook, Tim Cook's refusal to there help the FBI hack the iPhone is validated by WannaCry ransomware attack. And I remember saying at the time when we were discussing um, Apple's refusal and I was saying any sort of tool that is made like this can't stay secret forever. It will get out and it will fall into the hand, wrong hands and it will be used against the innocent and I have a great deal of admiration for Apple's refusal to develop such a tool but I also see recently that someone did develop such a tool and wasn't it just near a million dollars alleged that this third party created this tool for the FBI and allowed them to unlock that phone now what what do you think the chances of that winding up being purloined by a third party i have no doubt that'll eventually happen yeah right if it's already been used people are aware of it then it just seems inevitable at this point tools don't stay secret no especially if there's you know they know if you're they're known to work there's a then there's going to be immediate value on them and once mm-hmm. money starts changing hands uh, it makes it hard to keep things closed up now the cynical could say, okay, these tools were released on purpose. They weren't released accidentally. They were released on purpose, and they're just covering it up by saying that it was accidental. And I don't believe that. I think they actually lost control of these tools accidental, and there's been a lot of stink about it. Yeah, I think I think at this point I would, I would agree with you, and it seems like a little too, you know, it's, it it's, turns out to be kind of inconvenient, um, and I don't see enough reasons for them to have done it intentionally right now. No, but it's an interesting no. it's an interesting uh, line of thinking. That's for sure. The whole thing. I mean, it's we kind of been talking about this. This has been brought up really ever since like the Snowden documents first started coming out about like what what is going on here and what additional risk should we really be associated with the activities of this agency that's trying to do so much. I've, my observation is that this attack has had more press. Yeah. more mainstream media press coverage than any previous attack anywhere. Yeah, and I think that's definitely the case. Uh, even maybe more so, I mean, not to say that this attack hasn't caused damages, but it seems like almost more so than it's even been a problem for end users or people, there's been more media coverage about it. I don't know if that is because of the NSA connection or just the timing and maybe like, you know, the initial link to hospitals and other in- important social services. Yes. Uh, but it has been quite covered. Now, um, if, if you, let's have a look at this, the second link that, that we have here on the show notes. And this, this is a timeline of what happened. So in January, the Shadow Brokers leaked the list of stolen NSA exploits. I remember we covered that. Yes, we did. In February, Microsoft prepares an SMP patch for X, XP. Now, this is uh, Alan was mentioning something about this earlier today. He said that they figured out, figured that out 
from the timestamps in the patches that got released later. So they know it was prepared then. And we also know that in March, Microsoft <coughs> pardon me, released the patches for 8.1, 8.0, etc. Now in April, uh, Shadow Brokers dumped those exploits in the, in the wild. And so here we are in May when it actually started getting used in ransomware attacks against XP machines. But then what happened, and we're going to get ready to go to uh, Microsoft's blog post, which is about three, four further down the list. Microsoft um, decries the NSA stockpiling these vulns and not protecting the public, which is weird because... Microsoft had already patched it and it had already been released. But I guess what they're getting at is this could have been patched months or years ago, giving people much more time to to patch. Because if this uh, if this has been patched a year ago and released, I'm guessing they're trying to say that well, uh, the number of people that would have been vulnerable would have been considerably less. Right, like if they get a longer soak time, then the chance that people will actually have time to update their systems, get newer systems that are updated, etc. Yep. And it does seem like, yeah, there is kind of this, like obviously they do have relationships with these agencies and are working with them. This feels like a cry for like a little more leeway, you know, to be able to um, not have to be so tight-lipped about these things, even if they are given some privileged access already. There were allegations that, you know, these patches already exist. Oh, my God, Microsoft must have been giving it to the high-paying customers first. But mm-hmm. I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that the the patches were made available in a narrower circle. And then when, when it blew up, they said, oh, here, here, everyone take them. I believe that the, you know, I have nothing to prove this, right. to substantiate it. I'm just saying that. When you patch something, you generally release it, and it's just too much work to administratively say, oh, no, we're not going to give it to those people yet. We're only going to give it to this narrow, no, it's just not worth it. There does seem to be like a little bit of that around around something like the XP patching where they you know are not officially mm-hmm. supporting it except mm-hmm. for some clients who are, who mm-hmm. are paying them. But that makes sense because they're trying to straddle that line of not incentivizing people to stay on it. And this is a case where it's like, well, this is damaging enough that we really feel obligated to patch it, but you shouldn't think that you can rely on us to continue to do this as time goes on, which that's a hard line to walk for. That's a hard line for a public company like that to walk. It's incredibly expensive to support old systems. Yes. It really is. Um, Now have a look at the, third article in the link, the one from Troy Hunt, where he's basically telling someone off because about a year ago they were saying how to stop Windows 10 from automatically updating. And they put features in in double quotes. And I'm assuming that someone has found that updates were inconvenient. How's that ransomware treating you? Is that less inconvenient? (laughs) Oh, right. Yikes. Now, I'm I'm very sorry for anyone that got caught by this, but I'm not really sure of the advantages of not automatically updating. Um, Mind you, 
I don't automatically update my laptop, but it tells me when there's one available, and I run it as soon as I can. Right. And so that seems like, you know, it's like it, it really can be a spectrum for users where you have maybe some of the power users, more informed users, that it's like, okay, well, update regularly, pay attention. You might not need it to up. You know, I know some people get frustrated with these, like, updates in the background that cause you to restart at critical times, or mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. just want to shut your laptop down so you can leave, but, oh, no, it's installing updates. Um but I think for most users, it's probably just better to have a little bit of those annoyances and stay patched if they're not able to like keep up with the patches themselves. Yep. Now, Troy Hunt here admits sometimes updates will annoy you. This is about a quarter of the way down, eighth of the way down. Sometimes updates will annoy you. I've had Windows Update make me lose unsaved work. I've had it sitting there pending while waiting to rush out the door. I've had it install drivers that caused me all manner of problems. I've had it change features so that they work differently and left me confused. I've had it consume bandwidth, eat up storage capacity to do any number of unexplainable things to my machines. But those of us who have felt Windows Update inflicted pain will all agree on this. Microsoft needs to make Windows Update better. And yeah, I I agree with that. I'm I'm sure that the auto update when it first came out was a magnificent magnificent achievement, but as people get more sophisticated, they expect more, and they're going to want something that'll say, "Okay, update that tonight while I'm doing something else." Right. I think those are very popular. Obviously, that could be a little harder for like laptops and things, mm-hmm. but I think also like what you're saying is. There is, you know, you really, they do need to be seamless. You can really get in a bad situation where people have problems with updates or it breaks their mm-hmm. systems that they need, and then they get wary mm-hmm. of applying updates and then fall off the wagon and stop doing it. And that's exactly yep. back to the situation we don't want. Now, granted, I think that Microsoft has a much rougher time with these updates, much more difficult problem to solve than, say, Apple does. Right. Because Apple knows the hardware much more intimately it's just a smaller whereas, universe that they're playing in there um smaller do you mean of like the, the product number space. of users yeah the product the, the number of configurations the number pieces, of software yes. versions that kind of thing that's still huge but at least you know it's a well-defined set of mm-hmm. hardware issues whereas microsoft it's just huge the wide variety of stuff i know that um I have applications that I developed for Windows 95 that still install under Windows 10 and run. And that's impressive that a binary that I built more than 17 years ago still runs. I'm sure it's more than 17 years ago. I can't actually verify that. but Yeah, they really do take that backwards compatibility seriously. Yeah. It's some race timing software that I bought. If anyone wants to go and look it up, look up... Uh, the racing system, racingsystem.com. See if you can install it on later versions of Windows. I'm sure it still runs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I dare you to display that website on the... <laughs> it has That HTML has not been updated since pre-2000, I'm sure. Wait, what was that URL again? Racingsystem.com. Yeah, the software is called The Racing System because I couldn't think of anything else to call it. That's the one. Nice. And yeah, that that is a web ring. I'm sure that doesn't work anymore. Ah, that's too bad. I was going to go explore that web ring. I'm sure it doesn't exist. 
Uh, too bad. Well, anyway, that's an interesting bit of history. I wrote this software um, when the Kennett brothers in Wellington, New Zealand, were still running the Karapoti Classic, which is uh, an endurance, well, not an endurance, but it, it, it is endured by hundreds of people every year. And um, it was through the Akaterra Hills, and I hope my memory is right. Someone's going to correct me. But it's beautiful country, but sometimes it rains, and you've got three 500-meter hills that you climb in your mountain bike, and it's it, it's a rough course, but people do it. And this is the timing system that, that I developed to help them, and then I wound up selling it. That's they, awesome. always got it they always got it for free. Um, I really should reduce the price on it now down to about 20 or $30 because I'm not worried about price anymore. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, back to this. Um, Microsoft ha- have a rough, rough, uh, what I'm, a rough trail to walk. What is it? Something to walk. They, they're very conscious about getting the, the software updates going, but they, they do have to improve this. And I'm sure there will be a call to improve this over the next little while. Now, I want to talk, I want to go over what Krebs on security said about this. One of the things that they said was the UK hospitals were hit wide. And, and they said that at least 16 hospitals in the UK are being forced to divert emergency patients. And that, that's a big deal. Right. That's the real harm we're talking about here. Yeah. Not just inconvenience. I mean, I mean you're, you're not just, oh, no, I can't do my work. You, you're, you're endangering people's health. And they just go on about this. Uh, and it was the server message block service, which Windows computers rely upon to share um, files and printers across the local network. We know this is Samba, right? SMB is Samba. That's right. Now, uh, I'll get – remind me later to talk about what Alan received. Alan um, Jude received – an email from the Canadian government or a branch of the Canadian government say, oh, by the way, you're running uh, a publicly available Samba server and we just wanted to let you know. We're not telling you you have to take any action, but we're just letting you know that this is out there. A friendly FYI from your Canadian yes. government. Yeah. I like now, that. They actually run this on, uh, on purpose. They use it for provisioning servers. And I'm sure it's not as, it can't be abused like they, right. they fear it can, but it is, uh, it is publicly available. So, uh, now, at the end of this article, you can see an update dated May 13th, 9.33 a.m. Microsoft today took the unusual step of releasing security updates to fix the Samba flaw in unsupported versions of Windows, including Windows XP, Windows 8, and Windows Server 2000. Then they have a link for the post, to the post for more details. Now, um... I had the same article open twice, and I'm sure that I wanted a different one open. So UK hospitals, oh no, we've already covered that one. Now, um, there is another link in the show notes for uh, on Krebs on security talking about the unusual step that Microsoft took. So you can have a look in there and read more about that. They have a map showing where the this spread was. Interestingly enough, most of it was in Eastern Europe, from what I can see here. It is just yeah, it looks a huge like huge collection over there. 
Interesting. Why is that? Why is that? Why did that happen over there? Is it just that they didn't have the patches or they had... Right. Maybe they're running more, you know, unpatched older systems. Mm -hmm. Now, um, go to the next uh, Krebs on Security post where they talk about basically they'd earned $26,000 so far. How do they find out how much money has gone there? Well, all Bitcoin transactions are tracked and, and last week... Yeah, it must have been last week. I went to a website which literally shows the Bitcoin transactions going through. So my understanding here is that Bitcoin transactions are public in that the transactions occur publicly, but you do not know the individuals associated with that transaction. Right. It all has to do with the Bitcoin protocol and it being public information about this particular uh, transaction occurred, which affects everyone right. else. As miners validate blocks, those get added to the blockchain, and then that is you know publicly accessible data structure, basically that anyone can look at. Yes, but then they use you know a lot of services like washers and other things to try to increase the anonymity of you know, hey, this is this hash that this came from. Can you actually follow where that is? And while technically, usually it is possible to do that, you know, you have to have the the resources, the time, and the data to actually be able to follow that backtrack, and that can be very difficult and in practice, usually not able to be done by, you know, an average person. Now, is it the fact, is it part and parcel of the Bitcoin design that having this information public prevents someone from selling the same Bitcoins twice? I mean, I believe, I believe that's part of, part of that guarantee, right? So that you're all working from the same canonical source. Yeah. Someone's going to correct us. You watch. Yeah, That'll come up. Absolutely. That'll come up this week, which is fine. Now we've already covered what Tim Cook said. Um, now the second last article that, that I wanted people to be aware of is the technical analysis of the ransomware that hap- happened over there, and this is fascinating. I didn't have time to go all the way through it, but I started scanning through it and looking at individual details, and it's very interesting what came out of this technical analysis. And you heard that a lot of this uh, cyber attack was stopped by registering a domain name. And there's a lot of speculation. Oh, well, you could just register the domain name and stop it. So if you did that, you must be the the bad guy because otherwise who else would know what that was? Well, it's not that difficult because people obtained the malware, put it in a sandbox, and observed what it was doing. And one of the things it was doing was making queries on a um, domain name website and or making queries about a domain. And they found out that when they registered that domain, a lot of the activity stopped. So it's probably a, a, a way of having a kill switch. And it turns everything into a, what was the term, uh, a sink pool is is a term that they used for what became of the malware after this domain was created. Um, cl- d- display that last um, um, link, please. The one about how to accidentally stop a global cyber attack. Mm, there we are. Now, the DNS queries here, they can see the volume which shows the com- campaign started around 8 a.m. So somehow they, they store all these uh, DNS queries that come along. So Friday at about 8 a.m. UTC, the 
domain name um, queries for the domain in question sort of peaked. And then you can see later on that it dropped off to almost nothing. Yeah, look at that. And what's really cool, do you see this map down there? I think you can run that and you can see where every all the queries are coming from. It is just... Oh, yeah, look at that. Basically That's really what fun. he did. So he said about making sure the sinkhole servers were stable and getting the expected data from the domain we'd registered. At this point, we still didn't know much about the domain, just that for anyone infected with this malware, we would connect the domain we now own, allowing us to track the spread of the infection. Sorting out the sinkholes took longer than expected due to a very large botnet we had sinkholed the previous week, eating up all the bandwidth. But soon enough, I was able to set up a live tracking map and push it out to Twitter, and you can still see it there. So just below this, you can actually see the code where they're actually checking for the domain and seeing whether or not it exists. Um, This I found very fascinating. And one of the top comments is, the media are dead wrong calling you an accidental hero. You are a professional, and this was great work. Well done. Um, this saved a lot of people, I think. Uh, and then Monday morning, what's today? Tuesday? Monday morning, they were also concerned that people would be coming into the office, turning on their on the hardware right. and powering it up, and it would all start up again. Now, I, I heard very few reports uh concerning that monday morning did you hear anything no i haven't Uh, heard anything of like a resurgence of anything i think i've heard you know people saying that there's been less impact than they expected as this has developed yep so let's say friday saturday sunday monday so basically over those three days Mm -hmm. three hundred thousand computers got hit by it and now hopefully it's dead but if all it is is a domain, I, I did hear that new variants were being yes. released using other domain names. Yeah, there's been other switches. domain names. I think there was one that yep. didn't have a kill switch, but it actually it didn't actually encrypt things. Like it wasn't a, a properly working variant. Uh, so clearly, there's some you know mutation out there. Hmm. Now there was talk of North Korea recently. Yeah, but the only link there was code that was found. Uh, which was previously attributed to North Korea. That doesn't mean it was North Korea. They're just stating that we've seen this code. There's Parts some correlations of the code in this here. Malware. Yes. So, yeah, all this stuff became public. So they, it's been out there before. People, you know, anyone could pick it up and mm-hmm. reuse it. It's for, it is still very difficult to figure out who did this. Yeah, definitely. You, you just see little signs here and there about who it might be. And so, if we do know, yeah. it'll probably take some time, you know, a long time of yeah. people puzzling this out and correlating a lot more things. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't assume it was North Korea. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it was just code previously attributed to them. Um, do you know anyone that got hit by this? You know, not, not personally that I've heard of, thankfully. None of my family or friends that I've uh, asked about it. Uh, and I don't think I've heard anything at work or any of my friends' offices either. So that's good. 
No, I, I haven't heard anything. Right. So it seems like um, on this one, like, you know, if you are able to be in an environment where you are up to date, you're running modern software that you patch regularly. Hey, it turns out patching your shit actually works. Yep. <laughs> Everyone who is updating regularly, nobody would have gotten hit by this. Mm-hmm. As far as I know. As far as I know, right, everything was patched in in March. And if you'd upgraded and patched, you were safe. Yeah. So there's no excuses. Please <laughs> patch your shit. Anything else you want to add about this story? Whenever I talk about this stuff, you know, we all we often get lulled into a false sense of superiority by saying, "Oh, these people didn't patch." Oh, uh, right. And I'm sorry if you get hit by this, or if your friends or family get hit by this. It's terrible. But the precautions are well known, and and how to fix it. And others, don't be taunting others, please. Thank you. Right. And hopefully, we can start. You know, we really need more organizations. Uh, and operations to embrace security as a you know as a process as a workflow that you are conscious of in in all things that you're doing in all your operations and it's not just some it's not a checkbox to be compliant it's not something you do when you have time it's something that you need to do and spend some time and resources on all the time yes it's got to be second nature you got to be very mm-hmm. conscious of it and just proceed and do it well, I think that brings us to our first sponsor. If you, maybe you just bought a new domain name, you stopped a botnet, and you're like, well, what do I do with this domain name now? I've got it for a full year. You should go over to our friends at DigitalOcean.com. Put that to some good use. Over at DigitalOcean, you will find a company that's trying to make cloud computing oh so simple. Go over to DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code. Yeah, that's right. A fancy promo code. SnapOcean. All one word. SnapOcean. That will get you started with a $10 credit. And guess what? Prices at DigitalOcean, they start at just $5 a month. What does that get you? That gets you an awesome KVM-backed virtual private server. Yeah, that's right. In the cloud. 40 gigabit hypervisors, 40 gigabit Ethernet connections right in from their awesome peering straight to the hypervisor. Plus, they've got like a ton of distributions that you want, even got FreeBSD if that's your thing. And they've really been stepping their game up. But let me just say, DigitalOcean is doing a great job. They have all the features you might want from some of the big name, you know, their big name competitors. They've got high CPU droplets. They're just introducing them. You can request early access right now. Go play with this awesome new feature. Recently, they've introduced monitoring they've got load balancers now they've got attachable network storage they've got private networking between droplets in the same data center all the premium features that you want to you know make your next awesome project on DigitalOcean. plus DigitalOcean gets it they understand that like you're excited about this stuff you want to play with it you're trying to build awesome new new software new products that's why right at the top of their page they have a community section yeah, so you can go there. You'll find a ton of awesome guides. They work with the community members who write great content. They have real in-house editors ready right there to turn this content into beautiful documentation. It's gotten to the point where if you Google how to do something on Linux, FreeBSD, like half the time, you're going to end up finding some DigitalOcean documentation. That's because they know. They care. They're experts in this. Go follow their social media. They have awesome pictures of their beautiful data centers. Boy, they know how to rack some things. I think Dan would agree with that, being a rack man himself over there. Um, so that's why we like DigitalOcean. They've got awesome prices that you can do it monthly, 
or hey, you can even do hourly. You just scroll on over to their pricing page right here. Plus, with our promo code, you've got that $10 credit. So that could pay for your first two months of a $5 drop. But that comes with 512 MB of memory, one core processor, 20 gigs of SSD disk. Yeah, that's right. It's all SSDs over DigitalOcean. And one terabyte of that premium transfer. So don't waste any more time. Put that shiny new domain name to use and head on over to DigitalOcean.com. Thank you, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Alrighty. Now we're on to our next topic this evening. What do you have for us, Mr. Dan? We have production uh, debugging code that should have never gotten into production. Uh. So sometimes when you're developing software you do ugly things ugly things especially when you're testing sometimes you do things for debugging to make sure that this does that and that does that and often in c code you'll say if number sign if debug type thing uh if def debug if i recall correctly and then you do things and then when you turn that flag off and you compile it again all that code magically disappears and it appears they forgot to include something in an F debug because there is a keylogger found in the audio driver of HP laptops. Oh, not, no. Not all HP laptops, but about 26 models, I think it was. We'll get to that. 28 laptop models. So let me read this because getting it right is important. The audio driver installed on some HP laptops includes a feature that could best be described as a keylogger, which records all the user's keystrokes and saves the information to a local file accessible to anyone or any third-party software or malware that knows where to look. I don't like how this sounds. No. Swiss cybersecurity firm ModZero discovered the keylogger on April 28th and made its findings public today today being may 11th five days ago now according to researchers the keylogger feature was discovered in the connexent hd audio driver package version 1.0.0.46 and later now it turns out that that that's that's been around for a while like years Uh so the problem is that the file writes all keystrokes to a local file at c colon users slash public slash log, And the auto driver also exposes keystrokes in real time via a local API. So it's like a keylogger as a service that's just running right on your laptop. Great. I love that. So if that file doesn't exist or a registry key containing the file's path does not exist or was corrupted... The audio driver will pass all keystrokes to a local API, literally an API, not exaggerating, named the Output Debug String API. The danger is that malicious software installed on the computer or a person with physical access to the computer can copy the log file and have access to historical keystroke data from where he can extract passwords, chat logs, visited URLs, source code, or any other sensitive data. So, Wes, let me ask you, in the past two months, have you typed anything that you wouldn't want public? Yes. I'm just going to say yes. I can't even think of a specific example, but I'm like, I'm just so certain that it's yes. Also, now I can start to think of some examples. And yeah, definitely. Stay off my laptop, Dan. Come on. (laughs) 
anyone, anyone examined this closely has stuff that they do not want mm-hmm. public. Nobody can withstand close observation like that. There will be something in there that someone somewhere can use against you. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just misinterpreted or, you know, there's like there's so many with that kind of with that kind of data set. It's just open to malicious things. There is so much if you just read a transcript, there is so much that can be taken out of context. Even jokes among friends yeah, definitely. just sound horrible when they're written <laughs> down. Absolutely atrocious. But if you had audio and video of what actually happened, right. it's Real completely benign. It's mm-hmm. completely benign. So back to the facts. ModZero researchers said they found the audio oh no, pre they found this audio driver pre-installed on 28 HP model laptops. How they found all those 28, I don't know. So other hardware that uses this driver may also be affected, but investigators haven't officially confirmed that the issue affects other manufacturers. So um, this audio driver has versions for the following operating systems, all the way from Windows 7 up to Windows 10, and 32-bit and 64-bit versions. So at the time, HP did not respond uh, for comment, but later on we'll see, see a comment in the next article. And then they go through, here's how to check for and remove the keylogger, and there's four steps. And after following those steps, the keylogger will no longer be active and will not start and reboot. So this article is dated 11 May at 8.45 a.m., and they added a note at 11.45 on May 12th saying that HP has released a driver update to solve this issue. And let's go – no, I have a different article. They've got one here, but I've got a different article here that I want to talk about, which is one from – isn't it odd? I wanted to say ZDNet on this because it is ZDNet. Net, not ZDNet. <laughs> That's how horrible. ZDNet just doesn't roll off the It tongue, sure does it? not. <clears throat> so, several uh, HP issues fixed for Keylogger found on several laptop models. So, I want to roll down here. So, HP has since rolled out patches to remove the Keylogger, which will also delete the key file containing the keystrokes. And earlier on, I read somewhere that every time you log in, that file is removed. So, it doesn't have stuff stored from day one. That's nice. It's only since you logged in. And in this post I'm about to read, you'll find find out details of allegedly why they did this. So HP Vice President Mike Nash said on a call after hours on Thursday that a fix is available on Windows Update and HP.com for newer 2016 and later affected models, with 2015 models receiving patches Friday. He added that the keylogger type feature was mistakenly added to the driver's production code and was never meant to be rolled out to end-user devices. Where was the code review on that? I want to know. Is someone running to get blame and being like, hey, now, what happened here? I hope so. So, the pre-installed audio driver's... The pre-installed audio driver installs the driver in the Windows system folder, which is scheduled to start every time the user logs in. ModZero describes the application as a crude way to check to see if a hotkey was pressed by monitoring, quote, all keystrokes made by the user to capture and react to functions such as microphone mute 
unmute keys or hotkeys, unquote. The application then logs each keystroke into an unencrypted log file in the user's home directory. The log file is overwritten every time the user logs in. So I'm going to say, let's say that this was never known by third parties. It was totally benign. It was totally unknown and no one was able to get to it. Now let's say from now on, there will be an exploit created to read this file. All they're going to get is anything that you've typed during this last session. But if you're a good little HP user and you've installed Windows Update, then you should no longer be vulnerable to this and no one's going to get hold of it. But I'm sure someone will and someone's bank account information is going to be stolen oh God. from oh, here. That's just that's terrible to think about. I'm sure it will be used for that at one time. So do you have Sometimes any uh, HP equipment? I just checked. I bought, uh, bought my brother a laptop the other, I think it was last year. Thankfully not on oh. that list, so I don't have to do any follow-up there. But, you know, for check, a second there, I was like, hmm. Check to see if the file is there. Anyway, yeah. just just see if it's there. I'll have to send him a note and uh, see about yeah. that. Yeah, I'll be curious. Um, I have no HP laptops. I had an HP Switch at one time, mm-hmm. but I sold that. Um, yeah. This made me sort of chuckle when I heard that come out. In an audio file, I couldn't understand. But now, yeah. now I do understand why they put it in the audio driver. Because they're looking for keystrokes attached to the audio driver. Remember the mute, unmute, sound, yeah. volume stuff? Mm-hmm. So that's... Kind of makes sense. That, that's a reasonable explanation. And it corresponds, you know, it makes sense. It checks out. Mm-hmm. But still, the sad part is that it got in there. That it happened at all, yeah. And people yeah. wonder why we want our drivers, uh, you know, open source and hopefully upstream in a kernel somewhere. Yes. Because someone would see this file name and wonder, what is that? Yeah, What's exactly. That? It looks like it could be filled with magical secrets. And hey, it turns out it is. It is very uh, magical. Yikes. Hmm. All right. Well, anything else to add on this one? No. I'm HP, they got told, they fixed it, they released. Awesome. There you go. A happy story. Here's another happy story for your wallet. That's right. It's our friends over at Ting. Go on over to techsnap.ting.com. There you will find a smarter way to do mobile. Just click this little button right on their homepage. What would you save? That will take them over to their awesome pricing page. This is where they break it down. This is what makes Ting different from just about any other carrier you've probably worked with. What is it about them? With Ting, you pay for what you use. Yeah, say that with me. You pay for what you use. They just break it down like this. Each line, $6 a month. Then, Ting just measures how many minutes you use, how many megabytes, how many messages. If you don't use messages, hey, you don't pay for it. If you don't use minutes, you don't pay for it. You don't have to play this game with your carrier where you're you know, trying to get the best deal possible. You're saying, well, you know, I really need that five gigs a month because last September, I really used all of it, even though I never really use all of it, except for like once or twice a year. I don't want to pay those overage charges. No, that's that's a game that Ting does not want to play. Ting makes it simple. Ting is mobile. That makes sense, right? So just come on down here. I have a lot of fun clicking around on this page. Let's say you just use, you know, 100 minutes, no messages, and a couple gigs of data. Boom. First bill, 
$29 a month. Sure, maybe there's like some taxes and fees. Ting can't do anything about that. That's up to your state and locality. But Ting can make your bill super simple. And they have awesome apps, right? So you, you get the Ting app. You can do everything there. You can, on their website, they have an awesome dashboard. Ting tries to make it super simple. You don't have to spend hours on hold. Even if you do need, you know, you want to talk to a person, you call Ting up. Customer service is their specialty. They don't have to worry about, you know, building new towers, laying lines. They're, they resell here. So their value add really is about making sure that you have the simplest, best, most transparent mobile experience. It's totally different than any carrier you've used before. And if you go to techsnab.ting.com, They'll give you a $25 service credit. Yeah, that's right. You saw, you saw there. That will probably pay for the better part of your first month's bill. Maybe even, hey, if you're around Wi-Fi, it might just be the whole darn thing. So really, I don't think you can afford to, you know, you can't afford to miss out on Ting. Even if you can't switch, you know, can't switch your whole family just yet or yourself, Ting makes a great, you know, it's a backup phone. You just want a phone for when you're out camping. You don't want to bring your main phone. Or let's say you just want a backup data connection in case your main ISP, you know, maybe they're a little flaky, flaked out on you. Ting is perfect for that too because at $6 a month, it's very easy to just have a couple lines on there. You're not paying very much and you only pay for what you use. So you can bring your own phone that comes with all the regular features. There's no, there's no early termination fees. There's no extra charges for tethering. It really is mobile that makes sense. So try it today. Head on over to techsnap.ting. Dot com. And thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And that brings us to the feedback segment of this show, the time in the show where we take some time to empty out our mailbag and hear from you, our wonderful readers and listeners. Readers, I don't know. You read the show notes, maybe? Anyway, you're here and that's what counts. Up first, we've got something from MJ. There we go. Hi, Wes and Dan. First of all... Hi, MJ. Hello, MJ. First of all, I love the show. Oh, well, thank you. I've been a listener for about a year, and I think you're doing a brilliant job and have really made the show your own since taking over from Chris and Alan. Aw, thank you. We appreciate that very much. In episode 318, there was a question about managed switches. One bargain model that's fully featured and can be had for a song on eBay is the HP Office Connect 1910, a.k.a. 3COM2924-2948, depending on the number of ports. It's gigabit, web, and CLI managed. Ooh, that last part's important. Including mm. over SSH. Does Layer mm. 3 light, i.e. static, but no dynamic routing, still receives firmware updates from HP, also important, and has a lifetime guarantee. It's also fairly quiet, and I believe quieter fans can be installed if required. Search on eBay for HP JE000 or 009A, the 48-port model, and you can find examples for $75. Buy it now, much less if you hunt around. It's a great buy and my gig e home managed switch of choice these days. By the way, it would be great if Dan gave us an overview of his 10-gig setup. Keep up the great work, guys. Hey, MJ, thank you very much. Keep up the great feedback, and thank you very much for that awesome recommendation. I have not heard of that model before, but... No. I'm interested. I've heard of Procurve before. Mm, is, mm-hmm. it, is that what they're talking about? Because if I search for this, I see quiet HP Procurve replacement fan for 20 bucks. Oh, maybe. So it may be this one. And I do remember having a, a, a an HP um, switch, and it was web UI based. And I cannot remember why I get rid of it. I cannot remember. 
I, I think I think my boss gave me an extreme network switch, which I just got rid of. Um, well, it's still sitting over there if anyone wants to buy it. But I'm no long by got rid of. I mean, I'm no longer using it. So, yes, um, MJ, this is really good. This is the type of feedback that helps a lot of people. I'm just scanning through the eBay listings now, and yeah, I see some here for seventy bucks or best offer. And it's free shipping as well. So Yeah, look at this. This looks kind of awesome. If you're willing to wait, just wait for, for a low-priced one to show up and, and snag it. Yeah, exactly. And I really appreciate the, like, for me, a lot of the times, I don't mind the web view, but it's, re- it's really nice to have a CLI interface, especially over SSH or yep. similar. Yes. Like, that just makes yes. it the real deal. Um, and I see some of them, these are for sale I think they're they're new ones, but they also have the the power cord and the serial cable. Oh, nice. And remember, it may not be a serial cable. Mm-hmm. It may be like a, uh, at one end, it looks like a um, they have an like RJ45 a- connector. Mm-hmm. And um, I've got a box <laughs> up there labeled special cables that has one of those in it. Oh, and nice. When you screw up the configuration, you need to get in through the serial console. That is what you will need. Buy it now. Otherwise, you're going to be waiting two or three days for uh, it. When you really it need to it. Deliver it yeah. When you really need it now. Boy, it sounds like if we're ever really light on content, we could just spend a while. Uh, what's in Dan's special cable box? We could. Um, I also included photographs of what's 10 gig here at my place. Oh, yeah. Let's take a look Did at you that. you have that URL up? Ooh, there we go. Now, the first photograph is the top of the rack. Those are the switches that I've got. Um, you can see that a lot of stuff is disconnected at the moment because a lot of the boxes got moved around and aren't really working. I really should have plugs in those. I've got fiber optic cables just sitting around there it's terrible cable management but that blue cable is the only thing connecting the two switches at the moment Uh, and this is when when i put in i've had the uh the x16xg switch for some time that has my two main servers on it talking to each other over um, a 10 gig link um the bottom switch used to be the uh Extreme Network switch, but then I, I replaced that out for a US48 from Unify, which I have failed to get set up using VLANs. Um, and it's mostly a matter of time because PGCon is next week and BSTCAN is next week. All of my spare time is it, filled yeah, up. Yeah, you don't have an exact, uh, yeah, uh, a small docket there. And there's yes. like shows to do and you have a day job. Yes, yes, yes. So this black cable on the left, that's running over here to the desktop switch here because I was using that for doing some debugging and plugging in the laptop so that I could have it working. Um, that orange switch at the back goes over to my um, my little PFSense firewall, I think. Yes, it does. I just confirmed that. That's where that goes. That's it's confirmed la- live. It's, la- it's labeled. Uh, I think you can see the little switch on there. But anyway, um, let's go to the next photo. The next photo is two very neat little cards that I gathered. Um, I, these are 
in, I think there's a description label on them. Yeah, they are Dell RN219 Intel 10 gigabyte NICs. And I got these for about 35 bucks from a reseller somewhere in North, uh, North Middle Pennsylvania. And I think he uh, just scrounged these out of a, a, produ- a production box that uh, nice. had been decommissioned. So I have four or five of these cards now. And I put them in and they just worked. On FreeBSC, they turn up as the XG um, device. Oh, yeah, right. That's a pretty popular driver, right? And they're lovely. That's uh, awesome. I recommend them if you can get all of them. I also have some Connect X2 cards, but I don't have them running yet. Um, time. Time is the other thing. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Uh, any any other things uh, you want to add about your home setup there? That is exciting. I am not 10 gig in my house, and but I keep thinking about it, and uh, it sounds nice. All right. The 10 gig is really helping when it's copying data from the big storage server mm-hmm. to, to the tape library. It makes backups a lot faster. Ma- imagine being able to stream stuff there at over one gig. That sounds so awesome. Like, um, it just fed the tape drives very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other thing I noticed um, just let me find find this gist that I put up about different drive speeds that that I found interesting mm. when I saw it. Um, here's I'm going to feed feed you something uh, under the public IRC channel. So that gist there, you can sort of see if you scroll down you, you, to the second part, you can see that six terabyte out of seven terabyte was scanned at 164 meg meg per second. But the other one is 850 meg per second. And the difference between those two bits of data, basically, is that one are three terabyte drives that are about three or four years old. And the other one are five terabyte drives that are about three or five, six months old. And I have a feeling that I should replace all my old three terabyte drives with five terabyte drives, not only to get more space, but to make them faster. And if anyone wants to analyze this, down at the bottom, uh, up at the top, is the specs of the drives, the actual drives that I'm using. And if anyone wants to get on there and reply in the comments and tell me the difference in the ratings for those two sets of drives, and that explains the speed difference, then I'll go and change them over and that'll be an interesting zfs talk because what you do is you um all wind up formatting all the drives separately with the same g part Mm -hmm. um, partitions and stuff and then just pull one out swap one in tell zfs start using that one now and i'll do that one at a time and once you get to the end it'll go boom and you suddenly have uh two-thirds more space just like that. That's awesome. I like that a lot. Yeah, that yeah, should be very so interesting. So go go crunch now? Dan's data for him and let him know what you think. Thank you. Thank you. It's a 35 terabyte um, pool at the moment. So let me do the math. Oh, no. Uh, 35 times, what did I say? Two-thirds more times point one 1.6. It'll be 56 terabytes. Oh, no. Sorry, that's really bad math. It's 17 terabytes now. It'll become 34 terabytes after, I think, or 31. Anyway, 
I'm having trouble doing math. It's late. On to the next. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, okay, up to our next piece of feedback today. We've got a letter in from Josh asking about password manager and why no yep. autofill. Yep. Hello. On the latest episode, All Drives Die, TechSnap 318, you mentioned that you didn't use autofill. You never really explained why. Is this because it introduces another dependency where a security flaw could exist? I'm using NPass, which I really like, and the file is encrypted locally and not dependent on a cloud service, except for my next cloud instance for syncing across devices. Hey-o! I use the browser extension for autofill, which depends on the local app being open and unlocked with the master password. Here he provides a helpful little link. Mm-hmm. Any extra details would be appreciated. Josh. My thinking is that if you have a JavaScript or something exploit in your browser, and your browser is already using that module to read your passwords, why can't something in your browser read those passwords? I'm just, I don't like the idea of something else being able to copy and paste from my password manager. I want to do that manually. Um, I seem to recall vaguely some exploit that allowed a password manager data set to be read from the browser by a third third party exploit. So no, uh, that's why I autofill. I have no proof. I just have a vague recollect recollection, but yeah, no. Right. I, I don't want the app to be able to copy and paste from my password manager. I mean, it seems like there should at least be more more research. I'd like to see more implementation details of that kind of thing because, you know, obviously there's also issues of like using the clipboard because once it's in the clipboard, other things could take it out of the, the clipboard. I know like a lot of things like <coughs> keypads and stuff, you know, would then implement, you know, timers or once they've detected mm-hmm. it's been pasted, then they'll clear it from there or clear it after a certain amount of time or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, it seems like that's, you know, there's trade-offs both ways, but you need to be sure that what you're doing is limiting the risk of whatever risk factors that you're really concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, it does seem better to have, you know, if you can have a simpler system, then mm-hmm. that's probably better. Someone mentioned last week when we talked about password managers that such and such an app does clear the um, clipboard. And I have more than once pasted my password in somewhere where it shouldn't have been. Yeah. Fortunately, I recognized it as a password and <laughs> deleted it. <laughs> yeah, but. right. And if you're using a password manager, then it makes it really easy for you to go generate a new password, update your accounts, and then be yes. like, all right, well, fine. Yes, yes. Whoopsie. Yeah, totally. And it is just that one account, too. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. That's another benefit of using a password manager at all. So it seems like to me like... You know, you should if you're going to use autofill, you should be aware of what methods it uses. I know on Android, you probably should be like it's better to use like the keyboard style input where you have a keyboard that you can get through rather than having it be on the system clipboard. Um, I'm not sure about what options there are on the desktop and how secure they are. I think it's worth looking more into. But regardless, you should use a password manager, and then yes. you know anything on top of that is like okay, well, it really doesn't really compare in severity. Definitely. Everyone should start using a password manager if you have more than two passwords. Mm-hmm. Which Use a different do. password on everything. Yeah, that makes it, it makes it a lot easier when, when there are security now, breaches. Now, I do admit that for a long, long time, I used the same password or a similar password in different places. But a few years ago, it got it just it just 
ballooned the number of passwords I had. I think it was about the time that I started working at the current job mm-hmm. when I had so many servers that I was now connecting to and so many different passwords. I just right. could not keep them in my head anymore. So I think that's like another benefit that people maybe don't talk about. You don't have to always necessarily be completely religious with your password manager use. It may just allow you to then, you know, maybe you still do need a couple passwords that you use uh, a little bit more or oh, yeah. or daily, yeah. but that lets you make sure those are really secure because you can just focus on remembering those and yeah. not like your 16 other passwords yeah. that you have to remember. And Just don't make it your only, master password. Yeah, there are only two or three, maybe four or five passwords that are not in my password mm-hmm. manager. Um, I do use my password manager many times a day because I just, you know, there's three or four times a day that I have to log into this one service at work and I mm-hmm. copy paste the details from there. I cert- I don't know most of my passwords. I know. Isn't that, it's a funny feeling when you first do that. Someone asks, should you rotate your master password? Last week, didn't we find that the NIST suggestion was password rotation didn't make sense? That's true. Although I wonder if that's um, somewhat in the context of like administering for large user bases. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems, it seems like it. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on, on, your, on your threat vector, right? And if, if you have reason to believe. It certainly doesn't seem like in that case, if, you, if it's easy enough for you to remember and you're like, I know like for my master password, I usually I try to generate, you know, a long random thing that I then rather than make it easy for me to remember, I just like go through the effort because it is my like one master password of actually remembering yeah. it. So if you can do that, it seems like, OK, well, if you're willing to go relearn a new one, it probably won't hurt you to have key rotation. But maybe it's not, you know, if you're also not using that for anything else, then the, the, the reasons to do it are a lot less. Yes. It's an interesting. I'm not I'm not going to try. I'd love to read more about that. Anything else you want to add uh, for this feedback item? No. Um, I'm, I mean, it, it's just one of those things. Some, sometimes you have a, a hunch about why something should be done, and you can't really back it up with proof. Um, and you just know that it's not ideal to, to do it this way. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I don't always have pure facts and statistics to back up everything I say. Sorry. Right. Hey, sometimes it's just a matter of opinion. Uh, well, this has been uh, our feedback segment today. If you'd like to like, you know, also send in some feedback to us, which we would love. Uh, we had some great ones today. We'd love to have more next week um, or really anytime in the future. Go on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact there. You will find the contact form. You can also find both of us on Twitter or go to techsnap.reddit.com. Coming up, we've got the roundup. But before we do... It's time for a word from our final sponsor this evening. That's right. It's our friends over at ixsystems.com. If you've been drooling, you know, we've been talking about hardware, 10, 10 gigabit E NICs. We've been talking about awesome switches for the home use. So you're probably thinking, ooh, I really need some new hardware in my life. My friends, there's only one place you need to go. That's ixsystems.com slash techstamp. There you will find the definitive guide for buying hardware open source and backing that you will find a hardware provider like none you've ever seen before they're ready standing by with super talented sales engineers standing by the phones ready to take your call they're excited to talk to you about your unique 
problem space. What problems are you trying to solve? What are your needs? They want to be your willing partner here to make sure that you get the custom server solution that your business, project, or what else absolutely needs. They've got the latest and greatest Intel processors. They've got awesome awesome relationships with their upstream partners. And they've got a staff that's done this before. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Take a look at the people they work with. People like Mozilla, Adobe, Sega, GM, aerospace companies, NOAA, NASA, Tumblr, Hitachi, right? So these they, they work with some of the biggest names in the industry with some of the biggest storage solutions in the industry. So whether you need just, you know, a new NAS for your home or small office, for that, I would always recommend the free NAS Mini. If you need a new custom server for your small business, or, you know, maybe you manage some serious enterprise data and you're like, oh, we really need a new SAN system. What should we go with? Yeah, there's some big names in those spaces that you could check out. But if you are frustrated with the support that you've been getting, if you've been frustrated with the price, if you were frustrated with this opaque sales process and way too many model numbers and just, you know, you having to do the work to figure out, well, is this is this going to be the right component? Is this going to fit? Is this going to provide the IOPS I need? Work with IX Systems and they will make sure that all of those things are accomplished, that you pay a fair price, a really good price, and you get first class support, right? So if you start having problems, you're not going to have to have a, you're not going to have a runaround. You're not going to have to work at all of this nonsense. No, IX Systems will work with you and make sure that the hardware they sell is top notch. Plus, IX Systems is an awesome member of the community. They show up at a lot of events. That's why going over to their blog is always a ton of fun. Yeah, that's right. IXSystems.com slash blog. They've got some awesome articles, like two more things about TrueNAS replication your boss wants to know. So they really understand how to, you know, help you interface. So maybe you maybe you do know a couple of people at your office. Uh, they're responsible for buying new hardware. If, if you know, just go, go spend some minutes talking to them about IX systems. Even if you can't switch right now, I think being aware of better vendors in this space, people who really treat customers well, who take your business seriously, and who really are domain experts, it's always a good thing. Plus... If you, if you want to see some more exciting stuff, look at this. They have their Linux Northwest or Linux Fest Northwest trip report. I saw them there. It was really cool to see them there. They're always there repping FreeBSD, repping FreeNAS, repping all their cool projects like TrueOS. That's why they're one of the, you know, iX Systems really is above and beyond any other hardware provider that you could find. They've got the best hardware. They've got the, they've got the best support. They've got the most talented sales engineers. And, and they've got FreeNAS. So, I don't think there's anything more I can say. Go on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go get some awesome new hardware and then t- send us feedback telling us how much you love it. Thank you to iX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And that brings us to this week's roundup. Yes, maybe we didn't have enough time to cover these stories in the main segment, but... You would be wrong to think that they aren't very important and interesting. Dan's worked hard scrounging these links all over the internet. So what have you found us this week, Mr. Dan? Well, the first one is rather interesting. Um, And it's interesting to me because, one, it's a vendor moving uh, racks, and it's a vendor that, uh, a supplier, sorry, that I happen to use briefly, and they're moving within an ISP that I use. And it's um, FastMail moving from one data center of NYI, New York Internet, to another. Um, FastMail came to my attention when I started asking people, if you didn't want to host your own mail, who would you get to host it for you? And FastMail came up 
from someone who's been using them for over 10 years. Um, they, I think they're an Australian company because the folks came up from Australia oh, that does to right. do this move. And they were moving hardware from New York Internet's Manhattan data center to their Bridgewater data center. And I remember one night we were doing a show and I said, uh, at the moment, the FreeBSC Diary server is moving from New Jersey, from New York to New Jersey. Yes. And then I think we tried to go click one of the links to it and then we were disappointed. Yep. I think that is the same move that these did. That's awesome. But New York Internet handled that for me. I didn't have to go out, but it wasn't racks and racks. It was right. all in-house. So, um, yeah, they did some fire drills. They made sure that it all worked, and then they turned up and then just did it. And it seems to have gone rather well because some customers might have noticed something, but there didn't seem to be anything terrible about it. Right, that's very impressive, like to keep to keep availability going and... Oh, there we go. Here's some more pictures and move all that hardware. I like that, you know, they talk in this some a little bit about, you know, their capacity planning and their high availability setup. So it really kind of goes to show you that, yeah. you know, these are the kinds of stuff so that you can actually deal with technical debt and make progress yeah. where you have to, you know, you have to have enough capacity for that. And they're definitely, definitely using blades. You can see them there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look at that. It's also always interesting, too, just in today's world of, you know, cloud-dominated infrastructure, people who are still running their own data center things or contracting with these, you know, partners. Awesome. And they talk about missing rack rails, slightly smaller racks, networks not quite coming together on the first go, stuff like that. But, oh, it must have been terrible. Oh, I know, right? That feeling afterwards when you're like, we're done, everything's in place, we're all back up and running. Yep. And then you won't have to do that again for quite some time, I'm sure. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Well, anything else you'd like to add about this one? No. Thank you. That brings us to today's final roundup item. Just a little bit of a shorter roundup today, but it's hard hitting. This one, I think, is a great suggestion. People might not be familiar, but if you've watched TechSnap before or especially the BSD Now program, then you will be familiar with the star of this roundup item. Tell us more, Dan. Brian Cantrill. If you've ever heard one of his interviews, it's very interesting. It's never short of something witty to say. Um, This particular uh, talk is about debugging under fire. Keep your head when systems have lost their mind. And this is recorded in Chicago um, just a few days ago, I think. Uh, Now, what you should be aware of is that basically they rebooted a whole data center, not just a server, not just a rack, but the whole data center got shut down. The whole darn thing. The whole darn thing. Wow. That's, that's, this sounds like quite a story. I'm interested already. I think by next week we'll have some more information about this and we'll go briefly over what happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, if people aren't familiar, Brian Cantrell, he, he worked at uh, Sun Microsystems. He was involved with D-Trace, and he's, he's really a fascinating, enigmatic f- figure. And even if you don't agree with everything he says, because, man, he's got opinions, he is a great presenter, very energetic, and just a hoot to watch. So uh, I'm, o- I'm always down to watch a Brian Cantrell video. Yep, I am too. Awesome. Well, uh, I think that wraps up today's show. Anything you'd like to leave the audience with, Dan? 
patch your stuff. Don't let this get through again. Amen. I could not have said it better myself. So this has been episode 319 of the TechSnap program, broadcast live on May 16th, 2017. If you'd like to see more of this program, go on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find the archive of our show, The Past Incarnation, and a ton of other awesome shows, including a couple new ones like Ask Noah and the Linux Action News, both of which are awesome and could use your support. So go check that out. There's also the contact page where you can send us mail, the calendar page, which will let you know when you can be here live, which is a ton of fun. Plus, like a whole bunch more. You can watch live. There's the IRC room. The website's great. So go there. You can also find us at techsnap.reddit.com. And I am at West Payne on Twitter. And he is at techsnap underscore Dan. Thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you here next week. Yeah.